But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. If you want to be spiritual, if you want to think spiritually, you have to take into account not just this life, but the next. And it's critically important that we understand that the resurrection of the dead, the fact that the dead will one day rise out of their graves is a critical and essential component of New Testament Christianity. When you look at 1 Corinthians 15, and go ahead and open your Bibles there if you haven't already done so. We're going to be looking at this passage tonight. When you look at 1 Corinthians 15, the question that's being answered is found in verse 12. And the question is, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If you went to Bible class in Corinth 2,000 years ago, there might be some people that would teach a Bible class and they would make this argument, there is no such thing as the resurrection. And it was causing turmoil in the church because Jesus rose from the dead and Jesus promised that we were gonna rise from the dead and the apostles told us we were gonna rise from the dead. And that's why this issue is dealt with in such detail in 1 Corinthians 15. Some of the Christians in the church 2,000 years ago were advocating, were arguing, there is no resurrection. When someone dies, we're going to bury them in their grave and we will never see them again, ever. And that's not what the gospel tells us. That's not what Jesus told us. In fact, quite the opposite. And so last week, we began a three-part study of 1 Corinthians 15 that deals with this question. How can people say there is no resurrection of the dead? And if you recall from last, last Sunday night, what we talked about is verses 1 through 19, where Paul makes an argument that Jesus is risen. There's an argument from Scripture, an argument from authority in verses 1 through 4. According to the Scriptures, he rose from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, 4. But not only that, there's an argument from witnesses. He's been seen by over 500 people at once. How can you people say he's not risen from the dead? And then in verses 12 through 19, Jesus, the argument is made from logic. If Jesus is not risen, if the dead do not rise, then Jesus is not risen. Your faith is empty. Your preaching is vain. We are of all men most to be pitied, most miserable. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. How can you be saying that there is no resurrection of the dead? You know, this question has consequences. If you want to be spiritual, if you really want to think and make spiritual decisions and spiritual judgments, you have to believe in the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. Have to. You have to believe, literally, that everybody that's in a grave right now, everybody that's ever been buried, everybody that's ever died is one day going to rise again. You have to believe that. 
and it makes a difference in the choices you make right now. Jesus came to earth and he asked questions like this. He said, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Mark 8 verse 36. The rich fool was busy building bigger barns to store his stuff. And God said, you fool, Luke 12, verse 20. This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will these things be that you've accumulated for yourself? The resurrection changes everything. It means that we shouldn't spend all of our time and energy investing in this life. We ought to be thinking about where we're going to be in eternity. Lay up treasures in heaven, not on earth. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. It also changes everything about how we suffer. The Bible's full of statements like this. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17. I count, I reckon, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Romans 8 verse 18. The resurrection of the dead changes everything. And there are really only two options. If there is no resurrection then what's happening right now, this very moment, is of primary importance. If there is no resurrection of the dead, the Bible tells you if it's not true, then you ought to live it up. You ought to have as much fun and enjoyment and pleasure and not worry about consequences and not worry about where your choices are leading. You ought to live for right now. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 32 tells us, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The Bible tells you, if there is no resurrection, that's how you ought to live. And frankly, that's how many people, most people I would argue in our society live. Whatever I feel like doing right now, whatever seems good to me right now in the present moment, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to think about the future. I'm not going to think about wisdom and where my choices lead. I'm not going to think about where I'm going to be in eternity because I don't believe that's really relevant. Right now is primary if there is no resurrection of the dead. But... If there is a resurrection of the dead, if the dead do rise, eternity is what's primary. I ought to make decisions not based on what seems good to me, but rather what does God say is of eternal import. The resurrection of the dead changes everything. And it's going to change the way you live your life if you'll let it. As you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 19 is a defense of Jesus' resurrection. Tonight we're going to look at verses 20 through 34. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 34, and we're just going to ask five questions. How, when, why, so what, and now what? Those are our five questions. As we think about the resurrection of the dead, the argument that's being made, brothers and sisters, is verses 1 through 19, Jesus rose from the dead. Verses 20 through 34, therefore, you and I and everybody else that's ever died will one day rise as well. There is a continuity, there is a connection between the resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago and the future resurrection of the dead on the last day, the time that the Bible calls the end, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. Let's ask the questions about this passage and think about the connections that the Bible makes for us regarding our future resurrection. First question we're going to ask is how? The question is, how are the dead going to rise? And the answer that the Bible gives is through Christ's resurrection, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Look at verse 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For by, as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The Bible calls Christ the first fruits twice in this passage. Did you notice that? First fruits. It's the first part of the harvest. Usually in March or April, this time of year in the Middle East, the first crops are starting to come into fruition. And people pick those, they, they harvest the grain and they pick the first fruits from the trees. And those first fruits are the promise of more to come. That's what the word means. It's a promise of more to come. There is something unique about Jesus' resurrection. When you read the Bible, there are lots of resurrections that happen. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, there are people that are raised from the dead a number of times. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead for four days and was wrapped and buried in a tomb. Lazarus came forth when Jesus called him, John chapter 11. A lot of people were raised from the dead in the Bible. But, listen carefully, Jesus' resurrection is unique because... Jesus is the first person who ever came back from the dead, never to die again. Lazarus, Jairus' daughter. You remember Eutychus, the guy that fell out of the window because Paul was preaching till midnight in Acts chapter 20. Young man that died, Paul raised him from the dead. Even Eutychus died again. All those people who came back from the dead, all of them died again. They died twice. Jesus is different though. When Jesus came out of that tomb, the Bible says he's the first fruits. He is the first to be raised from the dead, never to die again, never again. There is no future grave for the Lord. And the Bible tells us, when we're asking the question, how, how is this connected with our resurrection? The Bible tells us in verse 23 and 24, watch this, or 22 and 23, excuse me. It tells us, that as by a man came death, verse 21, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden, they brought death to everybody. Even people who have not committed sin, little infants, little children, sometimes leave this world. And death, by the way, is the separation of your spirit from your body, James 2, 26. Why is death in the world? Death is in the world because of what Adam did. That's what the Bible's telling us. Now, the connection is made. Just as by Adam, death is in the world, now by Jesus, resurrection is coming to the world. So as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Hebrews 9, 27 tells us that because we're human and because we're descended from Adam, we're going to die one day. It is appointed a man once to die and after that the judgment, Hebrews 9, verse 27. But because of what Jesus did, the death that he died and the resurrection that he has experienced, he is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. His resurrection sets in motion a chain of events that cannot be undone. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead guarantees, absolutely guarantees that everybody else is going to rise from the dead one day. That's the argument being made here. Christ the first fruits and then those who are Christ's at his coming. 
So how, how are the dead gonna be raised? Through Christ's resurrection, it's what he did. It's the power that raised him that's gonna raise all of us one day and all those who are in the graves. The second question, as you look at 1 Corinthians 15, it's because we're connected to Christ, it's because of what Jesus has done that all of the dead are gonna be raised. The second question is when? And this is a really important question. When can we look forward to the resurrection of the dead? A lot of people, when they die and they have headstones, they put things on their headstones like, just waiting. I'll see you in the resurrection morning. They'll, they'll put things like that. They'll engrave them in stone because these people believed that they're going to rise from the dead one day. When? When will it happen? Look at the passage. In verse 24, the resurrection will take place when the end comes. Then comes the end. For those of you who are Bible students and really enjoy studying some important doctrines in Scripture, this is a critically important couple of verses. Verses 23, 24, 25, because it tells you some things that are definitely going to happen at the end of time. Some things that are definitely going to come to pass. The end will happen, according to verse 23, when Christ comes, when He returns. Not only will Christ return, but the dead will be raised. That's what we're talking about. The dead will be raised, they will rise when Jesus returns. The scripture says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, that Jesus is going to return from heaven with a shout, with a trumpet, the sound, the voice of an archangel. The dead in Christ will rise first. Those of us who are alive will be caught up together with them in the air. Thus shall we ever be with the Lord. The Bible tells us when Jesus returns, there will be a resurrection of the dead. And it's not just a resurrection of the righteous. Acts 24, verse 15, the apostle Paul said, I believe that there is a day when the dead will rise, both the just and the unjust. Jesus says in John 5, 28 and 29, an hour is coming when all who are in the graves will hear my voice and will rise. Those who have done good to a resurrection of life, those who have done evil to a resurrection of condemnation. Everybody's gonna rise from the dead at the end. And then in verse 24, the scripture goes on to say what's going to happen at the end. At the end, according to verse 24, God, Jesus is going to deliver the kingdom of God, uh, kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. So if you want to put this in a sequence of events, Jesus is presently reigning on the throne. He is the king reigning over his kingdom presently, right now. We are part of the kingdom and we're part of the church of Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.13. One day, Jesus is going to return his coming. And when he returns, the dead will rise and every rule and authority and power will finally be destroyed at that time. And Jesus will deliver the kingdom up to God the Father. That's the sequence of events. Can I just say, we have friends who are dispensational premillennialists. That means that they believe that Jesus is going to return from heaven and he's going to reign on a throne of David in Jerusalem for a literal reign of a thousand years. Again, not trying to be unkind, I'm just, I'm representing the view. 
And the view is that Jesus is going to return and he's going to establish a kingdom. That's what that doctrine argues. He's going to establish a kingdom on earth and he's going to reign and he's going to uh, rule over this world. This passage is a death knell to that doctrine because what it tells us is the return of Christ is the end. It's the end of death. Everybody who is dead is going to rise one day. And not only that, it's the end of all rule and authority and power. And Jesus is going to deliver the kingdom up to the Father. There is no room in this passage for a thousand year literal reign of Christ on earth. It's just not there. These things are going to happen in rapid succession. The judgment will take place and eternity will begin when the end comes. The resurrection. Next question, why? Why is this going to happen? Now, before I switch the slides, watch this. Look at verse 25. It says in verse 25, Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, talking about Christ. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, Jesus, has accepted who put all, or God has accepted who put all things in subjection under Christ. When all things are subjected to him, then it says in verse 28, the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all couple of things to think about. Why will there be a resurrection of the dead? This passage gives a couple of reasons why. In the first place, so that all enemies will be destroyed. And in the second place, so that God may be all in all. That's what the passage tells us. Why is the resurrection going to take place? It's going to take place first so that all enemies of God will be destroyed. And then secondly, so that God may be all in all. Let's, let's explore those just for a moment. When God made Adam and Eve, God formed them out of the dust of the earth and he breathed into them the breath of life. God made mankind to be a spirit living in a body. That's how he built us. That's what the Garden of Eden was all about. What is death? Death is a separation of the spirit from the body. That's what death is, James 2.26. The body without the spirit is dead. And this passage tells us that death is an enemy that will be destroyed. Said another way, death is never the way God intended for us to be. That's what this passage is arguing. Death is never the way that God ultimately intended for us to be. We die because sin and unrighteousness have entered the world. It's a consequence of what Adam did and people are still dying today. And as long as people are dying, as long as we still have funerals, death has not ultimately been destroyed. It's been conquered. It's been defeated by the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus rose from the grave and that guarantees that death will be destroyed, but it has not yet been destroyed because I've been to a lot of funerals and so have you. I've been to a lot of cemeteries. People have still died and they continue to die. When Jesus returns, death, the last enemy, will be destroyed. So, there are enemies of God in this world. There are, there are 
there are spiritual powers that are at work against God's will, against God's purpose, but there are a lot of people that cooperate with God too by the evil things they do and the wicked way that they live their lives. All of God's enemies will be destroyed and the last one to be destroyed is death. So that God, this passage teaches, may be all in all. Let me explain it with a a visual. Prior to creation, in eternity past, God had no rivals, no enemies. Think of it this way. No rivals, no enemies, nobody was trying to undo God's will, God's plan, because eternity past, God is all that there was. Or God was all that there is. God was all in all in that sense. There was nobody working against God's will. There were no enemies. There was, there was nothing working against any plan of God in eternity past. But when Satan went to Adam and Eve in the garden, all of a sudden, by what they did, enemies of God entered the world, if you will. And death is one of those enemies, just one of them. But sin and selfishness and, and evil, um, evil spiritual influences, those kinds of things, those are enemies of God. And they have been at work in the world since the Garden of Eden. And this passage is telling us that what God has done in Christ, brothers and sisters, he has defeated, he has conquered, he has become victorious over every single enemy that would war against God, against God's plan, so that when death is destroyed, when the dead rise, in eternity future, God will again be all in all. His enemies have been put down, they've been conquered, they've been destroyed. There are no rivals. There is no one working against God's plan anymore. That's what we're teaching. That's what Paul's teaching in this passage. Why will the dead rise? The dead will rise to prove God's greatness. And it's It's fascinating to think about. This passage talks about God the Son, Jesus. It talks about him delivering the kingdom up to the Father and then subjecting himself to the Father. I don't know all about what's happening there except to know this. I know that there is no rivalry within the divine person. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they dwell together. One being, three persons, they dwell together in perfect unity. And Jesus, the Son, is displaying for us humility and saying, I want God the Father to be all in all. I want him to have no rivals, to have nobody working against him anymore. That's what I'm looking forward to. And when I return, I'm going to destroy death. The dead will rise and God will once again be all in all. I will deliver the kingdom up to him. It's fascinating to think about the reasons why we're going to rise from the dead. Continuing, as you look at verses 30 and 29 and following, the next question is, well, so what? So what? And what you find beginning in verse 29 are some ad hominem arguments. Ad hominem. If you're familiar with logic or with debate, those, those words will make, make sense to you. It means to the man. And basically, ad hominem arguments are like this. If you really believe that the dead are not going to rise, why would you do this, this, and this? That's what an ad hominem argument is. Why would you go through with this if you really believe that the dead are not going to rise? And so there are some questions that Paul asks. It is vain, it is empty, it is pointless to say 
that I'm going to do some things if the dead are not raised. Vain, empty, and pointless. This is a this is a subject that Paul's already dealt with in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, verse 19. We talked about these last week. If Christ is not raised, if the dead are not raised, then your faith is vain, your preaching is vain, it's empty. We are of all men most miserable. Why are you doing what you're doing as a Christian if the dead are not raised? And now he's asking the same kinds of questions again. He's really upset because you cannot believe that there is no resurrection and still go to heaven. You can't believe there's no resurrection and still be a faithful New Testament Christian. It's just impossible to do. And so the ad hominem questions he asks are these, okay? Reading in verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? I'll come back to that in a moment, I promise. Then, okay, just get the flow of what he's doing. He's asking questions. What's the point? Why are you living a Christian life if the dead do not rise? Look at verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Jesus Christ our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It makes no sense to live the Christian life. It makes no sense to go through dangers and trials and tribulations if the dead are not raised. We are miserable and we're living our lives and suffering for pointless reasons. Now, that's the argument. What about this thing about being baptized for the dead or being baptized on behalf of the dead, depending on your translation? A couple of things. Number one, there are something like 30 different views out there, and you can Google it if you like. 30 different views of what that phrase means. Can I say this? Number two, whatever that phrase means, it has to fit the context. And number three, whatever that phrase means, it cannot conflict with any clearly stated New Testament doctrine. Whatever it means to be baptized for the dead, it cannot conflict with any clearly stated New Testament doctrine. You know what the New Testament tells us? It tells us that each one of us individually must decide whether or not we're going to be saved. I can't decide for you. You can't decide for me. And there is no point in me trying to be baptized for you or you trying to be baptized for me. There are plenty of passages in the New Testament that tell us that this is my decision. This is your decision. And as much as I love you and care about you, I cannot make the decision for you. And you can't make my decision for me. And after I'm dead, you still can't. In fact, once we're dead, our fate is sealed. The New Testament teaches that clearly. The rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, they were, they were in separate places. They could see each other, but there was a great goal fixed and nobody could go across to the other side. Once we die, our fate is sealed. So whatever baptized for the dead means, it cannot conflict with other clearly stated New Testament doctrines. So what might it mean? A couple of suggestions. Some of our brethren historically have suggested that this phrase means that the Christians in Corinth were being baptized with a view to replacing other Christians who had died. So if you think about the army of God, the church, some of the army, they're falling and somebody else is stepping up to replace them, repenting and being baptized. And, and with that in mind, they're being baptized on behalf of the dead. They're replacing others who have gone on and left this life. And Paul's asking, what does it matter? Why, why, would you, why would you do that if the dead do not rise? 
Another suggestion that our brethren sometimes have historically held, the idea that in Romans 6 verses 3 through 6, you know what baptism is? It is a reenactment of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Baptized for the dead. What point is there in being baptized at all if the dead do not rise? If Christ is, if the dead do not rise, he's already said, Christ is not raised. So there's no purpose in baptism. It loses its meaning. Some brethren have held that view. Some brethren have held the view that baptism for the dead has to do with baptism of suffering. Why suffer? Why go through difficult circumstances in your life if Christ is not risen and we're not going to rise from the dead. We're of all men most miserable. There are some other views that you might find out there that our brethren have historically held. Ultimately, here's a couple things to remember. He does not in this passage condemn what they're doing. If this were some kind of false practice, if this were some kind of some kind of outside of the Christian experience thing that they were doing, he would go into some detail, you would think, and tell them, this is wrong, this is sinful what you're doing, but he doesn't do that. He says, what point is there in doing this? Why would you be baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise? But as you think about this, and it's intriguing to study and to think about, as you think about this, don't lose the flow of the argument. Everything you're doing as a Christian is pointless if the dead do not rise. We might as well close the doors, go home, sell the building. We might as well quit if we don't believe that the dead will rise one day. So what? It matters. It makes a difference. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die if the dead do not rise. Live it up. Finally, question number five. Now what? What does God want from us? And he tells us in verses 33 and 34. May I just say before we switch to this point, Paul's interest here is not just academic. He's not just trying to inform our minds and our hearts. He's trying to change the way we live. And the resurrection of the dead is connected to every other New Testament doctrine. Did you know that? The resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection is connected to every other New Testament doctrine. It's connected to baptism. It's connected to the reason why we observe the Lord's Supper. It's connected to the reason why we worship the way we do or why we are organized the way we are. All of those things are connected to the resurrection of Christ and our eventual resurrection. There are moral implications here. What you believe in your heart will be lived in your life. And there are life-changing choices that happen when you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so now what? Verses 33 and 34. Look, let's read together. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Three things. Number one, do not be deceived. You're listening to these teachers in your Bible classes. You're listening to people preaching these sermons and they're saying, maybe just offhandedly, or maybe they're talking about it at lunch after church and they're saying, you know, I really don't believe there is a resurrection of the dead. I think Paul had that wrong. They're saying these things and you, by keeping company with those people, are being deceived. You're being led astray. You are wandering from the truth, James 5, 19 and 20. And this is not just some, you know, well, he's got that view and he's got this view and... I don't, you know, it really doesn't matter. This is not that. This is something that you will lose your soul over 
Be careful who you spend time with and who you listen to. If somebody is telling you that Christ is not risen or they're telling you that the dead will not rise, they are false teachers and you must deal accordingly. Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. And sometimes brethren need to be warned. We're living in a day, it's been my observation, when we kind of think false teachers don't exist. We kind of think that, you know, as, as members of the Lord's church, we kind of think that, you know, nobody's ever going to lead me astray. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12. Second exhortation, wake up, come to your senses. The word, and it's in the ESV, wake up out of your drunken stupor. And the word really has to do with somebody who has become drunk and they wake up and it's like you're trying to shake them up and trying to sober them up. And he's saying, that's kind of what's happened to you, church. You have become drunk and you're staggering around and you don't really know why you're doing the things you're doing and you're abandoning some foundational doctrines. These are foundational teachings, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ultimate resurrection of our bodies. Come to your senses. You cannot believe that there is no resurrection and still be a Christian. And then verse 34, do not go on sinning. Brothers and sisters and friends, it is sin to say something contrary to the gospel. It is sin to say there is no resurrection of the dead. And it's sin to go around telling other people there's no resurrection of the dead. There are some other doctrines. It would be sin for us to go around advocating and purporting. Do not go on sinning. And not only that, if we believe there is no resurrection, it's going to lead to sin in our lives. Whatever you believe, ultimately, ultimately will be lived in your life. It'll come out your mouth in the words that you speak. It'll be lived in your actions. Paul is saying, this is so serious. You're going to lose your souls if you keep on doing this. If you allow these teachers to continue to talk about this and to tell you that this is not true, Jesus rose from the dead and that proves that we're going to rise from the dead so that death, the last enemy, will be destroyed and God will be all in all. And if you don't believe this, you can't be saved. You're certainly not a Christian if you don't believe this. Critical importance. And today... We may not have people running around trying to convince us that there's no resurrection of the dead, but I tell you what, we need to be well grounded in what the scriptures actually say about this subject. Because this is foundational to New Testament Christianity. The dead are going to rise one day. Next time, Lord willing, verses 35 through 58, the next question that's dealt with is, how are the dead raised? With what body do they come? And there's a lengthy explanation in verses 35 through 58 of what kind of body we'll have when we rise from the dead. But don't believe that you can go around saying there is no such thing. The resurrection of Christ guarantees yours. And therefore we can say our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Maybe we can help you tonight to obey the gospel. Baptism is how somebody comes into a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ and what he did at the cross. Repent and be baptized. If we can help you to do that tonight, or if we can pray for you, pray with you, whatever your need, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing.